Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, our text is a a very familiar one, I trust, to maybe all of you. Uh, It tells us, along with Luke chapter 2, tells us about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in our short text, we're told of the, the miracle of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Our text also calls attention to the name of Jesus. And here, no less than the angel of the Lord tells us what the name Jesus means and what it teaches us, what what the name of Jesus teaches us about his identity, about who Jesus is, and what his name teaches us about his mission. You know, names names tell us a lot of things at times, and this particular name tells us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to see three things from our text today. We're going to see the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to see what it says about the name of Jesus, and we're going to see thirdly what what his name says about the identity and mission of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we see in the text this morning is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you look at verses 18 through 19, Matthew writes this. He says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Mary Mary is pregnant, but this was no ordinary pregnancy, or at least the beginnings of it were not. Uh, she was found, what does Matthew say, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph knew she was pregnant. He didn't know the other part quite yet. He didn't realize the source of this pregnancy, and so he came to the only conclusion he could possibly come to, that there was a father to this child and he wasn't it. And that's usually a problem. In fact, every other time in human history that would have been a problem. And so he knew because they had not consummated their marriage that that this baby was not his. And so he assumed, and in most cases you would give him you know, the benefit of the doubt in that, in that he figured she must have committed adultery in some way. But that's not what happened, was it? And so, you know, it's funny in the text says, as he was considering these things, he wasn't just, you know, fat. He was thinking about what, what must have happened. What am I supposed to do? And while he's thinking of this, uh, the angel of the Lord tells him uh, what happened. In verse 20, it says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, 
Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's almost like he said, I know what you're thinking. That's not what this is. This baby is, is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And even the fact that the angel calls Joseph son of David is a big hint about who this baby uh, was and, and the importance uh, of who he was going to be. Now, twice in our short little passage here, I don't know if you caught it, but twice in our little passage here, we are told of the, the virgin birth, of the miraculous conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This must be awfully important for our faith to grasp this and believe it. But how, how important is the virgin birth? Is that a doctrine that we can cast aside and still have Christianity in any meaningful sense? It's often been said, and rightly so, that ju- the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it's been called the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Uh, John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion wrote that justification is, quote, the main hinge on which religion turns. It's, it's the fundamental, in some ways, doctrine of the Christian faith, uh, it's the central doctrine of true Christianity, even if not the only essential one. Uh, Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, also said something similar like that about another essential Christian doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He writes the following. The doctrine of the two natures is only another way of stating the doctrine of the incarnation. And the doctrine of the incarnation is the hinge on which the Christian system turns. Uh, No two natures of Christ, no two natures, no incarnation, no incarnation, no Christianity in any distinctive sense. Without the incarnation of Christ, that he's truly God and truly man, we don't have Christianity. And there's no good news of great joy. So when Warfield calls the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we celebrate on Christmas the hinge on which the Christian system turns... Uh, why does he do that? Why is it? Why is that such a big deal? Is Warfield exaggerating? Is he saying something that we should disagree with? No, the reason is, without the Incarnation, there's no Redeemer. And without the Redeemer, there's no Gospel. There's no salvation from our sins. Without the truth of the Incarnation of Christ, we may have a system of doctrine that goes by the name of Christian, but it won't be Christian in any real distinctive sense, to use Warfield's Phrase. The Shorter Catechism, question 21, says this. It asks, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And it says, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is he the only Redeemer of God's elect? It goes on to say, being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Why does he have to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever to be our Redeemer. Can can God as God die in the place of sinful man according to his divine nature? No, God can't die. But man can. And so the Son of God became man. He took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. But our sins, the debt of our sin is infinite. You know, we often think that we're pretty good people until, you know, if I, if we compare ourselves to someone else, we can always find someone else who's worse than us. We can usually find somebody who's a lot worse than us. And so we can look at them, and if we measure ourselves by that line, we might think we have a straight line, but we don't. 
What's the real standard of righteousness that we have to measure up to if we're going to be right with the Lord? Perfection. We have, to, we have to obey God in everything He has commanded from the heart at all times and not transgress one part of His law. None of us have done that. Only one, the only one who has done that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so because our sins are infinite, not only must there be someone to die in our place, that someone's death must be of an infinite value. It must be, it must be equal to the task of paying for, for our debt of sin, which is infinite and unrepayable by us. And so the Redeemer of God's elect must be God, who's infinite, and must be man who can die in our place. And so the doctrine of, of, the, of the incarnation of Christ that we celebrate rightly every Christmas time and all throughout the year, that's why Warfield says it's the hinge on which the Christian system uh, turns. That without it, you've got nothing. You've got no gospel. You've got no good news and no Christianity as well because without that, you don't have a Redeemer. Without the incarnation, there is no Christianity. And without a Redeemer, there is no salvation from our sins. But that is why He came to save His people, what? From their, from their sins. And the second thing that we see in our text isn't just the incarnation, as important as it is, but it's also the, the name of Jesus. Our text makes a lot of significance out of the name of Jesus. Look again at verses 20 to 21 and what the angel of the Lord told Joseph in that dream. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You might know that in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament both, Names are often very significant, very important. They often tell you something about the person's character or purpose. And this is especially the case when when the Lord himself gives the person his or her name. Sometimes God even changes a person's name. You might know throughout the scriptures names such as Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Peter and Paul. All those names were changed by the Lord for for his own purposes. For example, the, the name Abram. You might know Abraham's original name was Abram. Uh, and Genesis 17.5 says that, that because the Lord was going to make him a father of a multitude of nations, he changed Abram's name to Abraham. The name Abraham, the Hebrew name Abraham, is, is Hebrew for father of many or father of a multitude. So think about that. Every time Abraham, after God changed his name, every time Abraham heard his new name, He was reminded afresh of God's promise to him to make him the father of many. And he was a childless old man. But every time he heard his name, it wasn't wasn't sarcasm. It wasn't God kind of playing a joke on him. It was a reminder of God's promise to him. And really, his name was a constant reminder. Every time he heard his name, it was a constant reminder of the promise of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That promise in you all the nations shall be blessed, we're told in the New Testament, that that was a promise of the coming of Christ. It was a promise of the gospel. Joseph, in our text, was to take Mary to be his wife and raise her baby as his own. And he was even told that she was going to, he was told it's going to be a boy. He wasn't left to to guess. uh, And he was told that he wasn't going to get to pick the name. In fact, verse 24 says it in such a way that to strengthen it, he was what? Commanded. He did what he was commanded to do. 
The angel of the Lord didn't say, hey, this will be a great name. You know what we do when we have when we have babies and we have lots of relatives and friends that suggest names and hey this would be a really good name usually it's their name you know uh, the angel of the Lord says you're going to name him Jesus <laughs> you know this this isn't an option for you he was commanded to name the boy Jesus and to raise him as his own why what's the big deal about the name Jesus what does the name Jesus mean it's hinted at in the text the name Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. Remember Joshua who took the children of Israel into the, into the promised land, into the land of Canaan? Joshua or Yeshua, which is the equivalent of Jesus, it means the Lord saves. Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord who saves. And so the name of Jesus tells us something, even from his birth, about the identity of who he is and about what he came to do, about his mission. The name of Jesus tells us that he is the Lord and then he came to save his people from their sins. And the Bible in Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. And what does it add there? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name is important. God is very jealous for his name. What's the third commandment? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. What does the Lord's prayer open with? Hallowed be your, or thy, name. And Acts 4.12 says there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so I ask this morning, this Christmas, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Are you saved from your sin? Have you called on Jesus Christ for salvation? That's why he came. Without that, all the Christmas lights and Christmas trees and decorations and presents mean less than nothing. Well, that leads us not just to his name, but what his name tells us about his identity, about who Jesus is and was to be. We've already seen that his name means the Lord saved and saves. And so from the earliest pages of the New Testament, the name Jesus teaches us that he's none other than, than whom? Who? What does his name imply about who he is? Jesus is the Lord himself. He's God in the flesh, the Son of God incarnate. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying he is God. His name even implies that he is God. Right out of the gate, the Gospel of Matthew, in the very first page of the New Testament, kind of forces you and I to reckon with who Jesus really is. We don't get to make up what we think he is on our own. So make no mistake, Jesus Christ is not just a good moral teacher. He's not even just, he is a prophet. He's the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15, but he's not just a prophet. He's not just a man, although he is a man. He's none other than God himself, the Son of God, who took on human flesh and became man for our salvation. Just in case the name Jesus wasn't clear enough of a hint, our text goes on in verses 22 to 23 to tell us this. It says, all this, what's all this? His birth, the naming of it, giving him the name Jesus, all that. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that's the prophet Isaiah, and what did Isaiah say in Isaiah 7.14? Behold, the virgin, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds the translation for us, which means what? What does Emmanuel mean in that prophecy 700 years prior in the book of Isaiah? In Isaiah's prophecy that they were going to call his name Emmanuel, it means God with us. In other words, Matthew is saying, 
Jesus, not just his incarnation, not just his his conception and birth, but also his naming was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The very same phrases are found in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 7.14 that Matthew writes here. He says, the angel told Joseph in verse 21, she will what? Bear a son. What does Isaiah say? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then what does the angel say to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus. And Isaiah says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In other words, Emmanuel and Jesus mean the same thing. God with us and the Lord who saves. So the virgin birth, which Matthew goes on to tell us about in such great lengths, and to impress that upon us, tells us in no uncertain terms that this was just no ordinary baby. This baby in the manger was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit himself, and the baby in the manger was the very Son of God incarnate who came to save his people from their sins. The very next chapter of Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel rather, Matthew chapter 2, we're told about the wise men, you know, the we three kings that we always sing about, and it says that they fell down and worshipped him. Matthew 2.11 Think about that for a second. If this baby is anybody but the Son of God incarnate, that's blasphemy. It doesn't just say they saw the baby and fell down and worshipped. He says they fell down and worshipped him. Must have been an odd scene to be worshipping a baby in a manger. But if they had worshipped him and he wasn't the Son of God incarnate, that would have been blasphemy. And this also explains that heavenly choir spoken of in our text we read this morning from Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2, 13 to 14, it says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Think about how, how big the event of the incarnation and the virgin birth of Christ was, that it took a heavenly choir, a heavenly host, crying out and praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. You know, not many human not many people noticed the birth of Christ. They certainly didn't not many came to worship him, although some did by God's grace, but it took the choir to give us the real reason and the real significance and importance of the birth of that baby Jesus Christ on that first Christmas. The incarnation and identity of Christ should cause us as well to do the same thing that those those uh, kings did, those wise men did. We should Worship him and praise God for his birth as well. And that brings us, finally, his uh, his name not only tells us of his identity, it also tells us of his mission. The mission, why, why did Jesus come into this world in the first place? Why was he conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? What was the point of all of that? Why did the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Son of God lay aside his glory and take on human flesh? Why did he endure the humble circumstances of his birth? And even worse, the suffering uh, of, of the death on the cross and even the grave itself. Jesus Jesus did a lot of great things during his earthly life and ministry. John chapter 20, verse 30 tells us that Jesus did, quote, many other signs, miracles. And that he did so many miracles uh, that if, if John were to try to have included all of them, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them if he had tried. Jesus didn't just do a few miracles here and there. He did so many. John couldn't begin to write about them all. He chose seven of them to focus on in the Gospel of John. But he says there's not enough books 
There's never enough books. I, I could, it would, my library would be much more full than it is even now. Jesus turned water into wine. He healed the lame. He fed thousands of people with one boy's lunch. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But those things, as good as they are and as important as they are, are not why he came. Jesus Christ was a great teacher. Look at the Sermon on the Mount sometime, Matthew 5-7. through 7. The crowds, were told throughout the Gospels, were amazed. They were astonished at his teaching. What, what was it about his teaching they found? It was his authority. There was something markedly different about the teaching of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet like Moses, the one greater than Moses. Look at his parables. The Pharisees and scribes tried to argue with him and couldn't, couldn't hold a candle to him. As important as his teaching is and his preaching, those things were not his primary purpose. His teachings are important. Don't neglect the teachings of Jesus Christ in the Bible, but that that wasn't the primary reason he came. He came because he was going to save his people from their sins. Even that angelic announcement of his birth, even in that announcement, his death on the cross wasn't far in the background. Easter is not far in the background from Christmas in our text. And how do you know that? Because he was born to save his people from our sins. How, how did he save us from our sins if not in his death and resurrection? And so we must never separate the manger from the cross. We must never separate Christmas from Easter. The manger without the cross is not good news. It is not the gospel. James Boyce writes this, Christmas by itself is no gospel. The life of Christ is no gospel. Even the resurrection by itself is no gospel. The good news is not just that God became man, nor that God has spoken in Christ to reveal a proper way of life for us, nor even that death, our great enemy, has been conquered. The good news is that sin has been dealt with, that Jesus suffered its penalty for us as our representative, and that all who believe in him can look forward confidently to heaven. I mean, everything he did and said matters. He lived the perfect life in our place. That is a part of accomplishing your salvation and mine. But without his death and resurrection, the manger doesn't mean anything. It's not, it's, it's, it might be great news and, and an astounding thing to have happen, but it, wasn't, it wouldn't be the good news of the gospel without his death in our place. The purpose of Christ's incarnation, the reason for his birth, his mission, was that he would save us from his, our sins. And that means, first and foremost, that he was born to die that he might... Save us. He was born to die in the place of sinners. Born to die in our place and to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And so this morning I ask, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your sin and turned to, to Jesus Christ by faith for salvation from your sins? In him there is forgiveness for all the sins you have ever committed. In him there is redemption from the penalty and the power of sin. Psalm 130 verse 7 says the following, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. The fact that, that our Savior is not only uh, truly man, but truly God, the Son of God incarnate, that his, it means his death is of infinite value. All of your sins put together are, of an, are an infinite offense, but his blood can cover all of them, because his death is of an infinite value. To, to save us from our sins and to pay the price that we owed by them. 
Turn from your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus himself said, whoever comes to him, he will by no means cast out. By no means cast out, John six thirty seven. Saving his people from our sins is the reason he came. It is the meaning and message of his name. It is the real significance of Christmas that we celebrate every year. Acts 2.21 quotes the Old Testament, the book of Joel. And it says that everyone who calls upon what shall be saved? The name of the Lord. His name is very, is very significant. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as we saw elsewhere in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, I ask, have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from your sins? Have you believed the good news of great joy that we talk about every Christmas? Have you experienced in him the great joy of having all of your sins forgiven and being reconciled to God? That's that's the good news of great joy. Christmas is ultimately about the gospel. It's about the good gospel means good news. It's about the good news, the gospel of great joy that God so loved sinners that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Let's let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the your word as we as we we've said before, it says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning or change, Lord, and yet the most perfect and good and great gift you've ever given us is the gift of your son and in him we have all things. How shall he who gave up his only begotten son not with him, not along with him? Uh, give us all things, Lord. We thank you that you have lavished your great love and grace and kindness upon unworthy sinners such as us, that we might be uh, reconciled to you and have our sins forgiven and be accepted by a holy God as righteous in your sight, even though we are not righteous, Lord. We are far from righteous. We are sinful down to the bone, every last one of us. And yet in Jesus Christ, you have nailed our sins to the cross. You have punished them to the full uh, in your Son, in our place, and you account us and accept us as righteous in your sight because you accept us, those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, you accept us in him and in his righteousness that clothes us, that we can be accepted by you. And even our worship and our works can be accepted by you if we're accepted in him by faith alone, Lord. We thank you that you are such a a good and gracious and kind God, that you would send your Son to die in our place, that we might uh, live and, and all, all the blessings we can't even begin to comprehend that are ours in Christ, Lord. We pray that you would give us grace to, to understand this better and better, that we would uh, have fresh eyes to see the good news of great joy and have a wonder uh, and a, just a, a, a heart of filled with praise over the forgiveness of our sins and the greatness of your gift that uh, the cost that it was to you and your son to give us this gift of forgiveness. We do pray that if, if there's anybody here this morning that uh, does not yet know you and is still in their sins and does not have the joy of their sins being forgiven, that you would open their eyes even today, that they might see their sin, see their need for the Savior, and turn to him by faith, that they might know, really know for the first time the good news of great joy and have the the freedom and joy of having the knowledge of their sins forgiven and the assurance of eternal life in him. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.